TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to City Game, your Brooklyn Nets podcast on WFAN and Radio.com. Here's your host, Steve Lichtenstein. And hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the City Game Podcast, the show for Brooklyn Nets fans. I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFAN.com, and folks, one down, three to go. Nets won their first playoff series since 2014 and advanced to the Eastern Conference semifinals by dispatching the depleted Celtics in five games. Tuesday night's 123-109 victory was the first time they ever closed out a series at Barclays Center, so that was pretty cool. Now, it's on to Milwaukee, where the Nets will at least start out with the home court advantage. And what's in store for them? I'll get into that in today's show, in addition to recapping the Celtics series. And to help me with all that, I've got the film clip god himself back with me. Matt Brooks from NetsDaily.com will be joining me for a Zoom call soon. So there's plenty of Nets analysis coming up for you to enjoy. And if at the end you liked what you heard, I ask again that you please subscribe to this podcast on Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're downloading this episode. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, appreciate a kind word or two in the comments section. So again, Nets took care of business after a bit of a scare from the loss in Game 3. The Celtics you know, were, of course, missing a couple of big pieces in the last two games. You know, on top of the Jalen Brown injury that ended his All-Star season prematurely. No Kemba Walker meant Kyrie Irving could relax a bit on defense. Well, a little more than he usually does. And, you know, no Robert Williams eliminated Boston's best rim protector and another tough offensive board crasher. So to all those who are using the Jeff Green injury excuse after the Nets Game 3 loss, please... 
Look, I know fully well how valuable Green has been to this team, but you know the injury scales were still heavily tilted in Brooklyn's favor. Look, you know the bottom line for this team is this: Can they get enough stops to allow their prolific offense to pull four games out in every series? That's it. End of story. Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden look unstoppable more often than not. You could play the best defense ever invented against them, but if they shoot over you and make them, what difference does it make? And all three of them have that kind of ability. And when Brooklyn plays with pace, look out. They're lethal. Being so shorthanded, the Celtics missed a ton of shots. When the Nets pushed the ball up court, they usually made Boston pay. Not necessarily in the official accumulated fast break points baskets, No, the Nets rank in the middle of the pack in these playoffs at 12 per game. But those don't count all the times where the Nets got Boston cross-matched into bad matchups in transition. A couple of quick passes and they're dead. I asked uh, Nets coach Steve Nash before game four about his desire to get his team to play at a faster pace. And here's his response. Hey, Steve. uh, I believe we talked after the last game about the benefits of playing with better pace, uh, not just in fast break points, but gaining advantages in early offense. Is that something that you have to emphasize or does it come naturally to these guys? No, we definitely emphasize it. You know, it's important. It's also new. You know, these guys have very little time together. So trying to find that cohesion in that context is important for us. And, um, you know, sometimes when everything is so new, it takes time for that to become habit. And so we, we definitely try to, you know, message that to them and reiterate to them constantly about playing with pace, playing together, attacking, and, uh, you know, and continuing to play off one another. So whatever Nash has been telling them in these last couple of games, it's working. Last two games, Nets offense has been operating in video game mode. 141 points in game four, including a total of 79 scored in the middle two quarters. 79 points. Remember when the final score of NBA games had a team with 79 points for a whole game? I mean, it really wasn't that long ago. I'd come to dating myself, maybe. But anyway, after almost going for a 60-60-100 shooting split for a full game until the final minute, Nets again went nuclear in the fourth quarter on Tuesday night to end any drama. John Schumann, my buddy from NBA.com, He had a tweet where he said the Nets scored 34 points on their first 16 possessions of the fourth quarter. You know, to understand that, the Nets set an efficiency record this season by averaging 1.173 points per possession. So again, this was 2.125 points per possession, averaging more than a made two-point basket every time down the court. Amazing. Still, you know, that game could have easily come off the rails if not for the defensive ineptitude of one Evan Fournier. You know, I talked about Fournier last week, about how the Nets just shredded him to pieces in the first two games. Well, you know, it didn't get any better for him in these last three games. Nets ended up shooting 64.4% when Fournier was deemed the nearest defender by NBA.com's tracking. He also committed 14 shooting fouls in five games. 12 alone to James Harden. Now, early in the fourth quarter in Game 5, with Harden playing with four fouls, Fournier was in perfect position 
to get Harden to pick up his fifth. Perfect position as Harden was charging into the paint on one of his patented drives. Except Fournier just nudged a little bit, turning his body oh so slightly. Automatic blocking foul. It's the NBA, not college. Big turning point in my mind. You know, more so than when Nash had a challenge, an obvious incorrect charging foul on Harden three minutes later, which put Brooklyn up 13 with the and one. Look, you know, Boston had to play a near-perfect game to beat Brooklyn, and they didn't come close. They shot 43.5% from the field, 27.5% on 43s. And it really wasn't because the Nets were all that outstanding on defense. And Nets forward Joe Harris gave a good overview before Game 5 as to what needed to be corrected on that end. Here's the clip. Hey, Joe, uh, before you talked about some of the things you wanted to clean up, I, I'm guessing it's mostly on the defensive end. What jumped out on the video review? Um, you know, I was just uh, having a consistent uh, game throughout. You know, I think we have uh, great moments where, you know, the defense is solid, the intensity level is solid, the level of focus is solid. You know, we're playing um, – exactly how we prepared but then we have those momentary lapses where we might go a minute or two where you know they just you can live with with, with teams making tough shots but you can't live with them making shots off of uh you know missed assignments mental mistakes and just like room and rhythm easy looks um you know if they're going to make tough shots and you're contesting them uh, you kind of tip your cap to that and so it's just kind of getting back to more of that where you know we don't have as as many sort of uh mental lapses and we just play full four quarters consistently on the defensive end. That was the Nets sharpshooting Joe Harris, who didn't even bother to mention the glaring weakness on the Nets defensive backboards. Celtics averaged 16 second chance points in the series, which would have been good enough to lead the league if that was their pace in the regular season. Boston was credited with 13 offensive rebounds in game five, which again would be a league leading average over the regular season. And remember, that doesn't even include all the times the basketball went out of bounds off Brooklyn. Some of Boston's incredibly high 11-team rebounds were also on the offensive end, which explains why the Nets only rebounded 63% of Boston's misses in Game 5 and 64.5% over the series, worst rate among all the playoff teams. Now, some of that can be explained by the Nets' obligatory switching scheme, you know, it's funny because for years I practically begged Kenny Atkinson to incorporate more switching into his schemes. And he'd sub, you know, he'd stubbornly swear by his drop coverages. Here, it's gone to the other extreme. Yes, when you're facing a killer scorer like Jason Tatum, you just can't let him get around the screen and take an open shot. You'd like to have a defender at the ready to contest it. But I mean, you'd like to have the screen set first, you know what I mean? Like I said, a Celtic would come over to set a screen. It didn't even matter how well it was set. That's what just switch anyway. No need to take the hit. No attempt to like squeeze through it. But what that did it was allowed Tatum to be able to basically pick and choose his defender. And very often it was Blake Griffin. Now, the results could have been worse, but the Nets were playing with fire. Here's what Nash said when I asked him about that before game four. Hey, Steve, I know you just talked about uh, the defense with the particular physical and mental breakdowns, but do you have a sense that you're giving Jason too many of the same looks that it's been 
too easy for him to get off Kevin and into a more favorable matchup? Yeah, we do. Um, you know, I thought we could have been much harder on him. Um, you know, I, I think that there's there is obviously you can make adjustments. We have a number of adjustments to consider, but we also can do a, a lot of things within the, the scheme right now to make it more difficult. So um, we, we have to improve in that area for sure. I think he, he was able to get his catches and his, his, his spots too easy. Well, at least he agreed with that part. Not that the Nets did a damn thing about it. But I guess, you know, they did win the series, so it's only fair to point out some of the bright spots in the Nets' defense. And I thought KD was terrific. Engaged, savvy, athletic. Averaged over two blocks and nearly one and a half steals per game in the series. Took on Tatum until, you know, the switching. Harden also made some noise on defense when, you know, he wasn't getting blown by. Another two steals per game and... 3.4 deflections per game. That ranks sixth in the league, by the way. But, you know, the big defensive playmaker in the closeout game, my opinion, was Bruce Brown. Four big steals, three of which led to fast break conversions. Thought the last one was a big momentum swinger. KD had hit a three to stifle a Boston run in the middle of the fourth quarter, but, you know, Tatum was on the attack and Brown gets in the passing lane, knighted a Brooklyn transition that ended with a Kyrie three to put the Nets up 14, brought the house down. Anyway, I asked Nash about Brown's contributions in game five, and though I'm going to cut out uh, the portion where I asked the question uh, because there was some uh, technical difficulties, here's the clip. Um, you, you kept cutting out, but I think you were talking about the complimentary players and Bruce Brown. Um, I, you know, Bruce, Bruce was great. He, he had, a, had a few really good games in the series. I think he's able to change the game with, uh, you know, uh, how the energy and pace he plays at, you know, defensively, he covers different positions and is physical. He rebounds and offensively, he's a kind of a dynamic roller for a guard that's able to be a bit of a five on offense. So he gives us a different look. He's able to finish or pass, but his, his speed and burst getting in and out of screens is, is great. So Bruce was, was terrific. You know, he's a a big part of what we do. And, and you could say the same of, of, of all the guys that got in the game, they all had their moments where we really needed them and they came through. So uh, one last tidbit about Brown before I move on to the next topic, I mentioned the crowd before the clip, you know, in reality, Last night's wasn't all that special, sorry to say. Had more of a regular season feel to it. Just the way it goes. I mean, some nights will be hotter than others in Brooklyn. Anyway, you know, the atmosphere before the playoff opener? Electric. Fans arrived early. They were loud. You know, your typical NBA playoff crowd. So when the Nets came out of the tunnel for pregame warm-ups... Guess who led him out? Bruce Brown. Sprinted down the court, roaring like a high school football player going through one of those cheerleaders' signs. I'm sorry, I just got a big kick out of it, so I had to ask him about it. Here's the clip. You tend to play with a lot of emotion and exuberance and energy. When you came out of the tunnel before game one in front of all the fans, it was like you were at a football game. Could you just describe your what we were what you were feeling at that time? Yeah, it was amazing. Uh, to have the fans back in the arena, uh, the energy, uh, it was huge for me, especially because I played a lot of energy. So when the fans there, uh, it gives me more energy. Um, so 
uh, when they're there, uh, I'm running up and down the court 100 miles an hour. Uh, so it was huge for me and, and the team. Quick little non sequitur there from uh, Bruce Brown. Hopefully the Barclays crowd brings it on Saturday for Game 1 versus Milwaukee. Should be a great series. Two heavyweight contenders. Bucks just beat the snot out of the Heat in a four-game sweep. Well, the Nets had just that one hiccup versus Boston. I'll be curious to see how Nash prepares for this. Because what worked against Boston surely won't work in this series. Like that ultra-small ball lineup that Nash used in the last two games with Durant as the sole big and Brown as the nominal five on offense. I asked Brown where that came from, and here's his response. Hey, Bruce, uh, that lineup with uh, Kevin as the sole big at the five and you back. No, uh, no, no. I'm at the five. I'm at the five. At Kevin, right. Kevin the three. At the five. Kevin is the sole big on the floor. Did, was that a lineup that you knew was in advance was going to happen, or was that an in-game adjustment? No, I think that was just an in-game adjustment. We went to our last game, uh, I think, towards the end of the game. Uh, so, yeah, that was just an in-game adjustment. We haven't really uh, practiced that or anything. So, yeah, I know Nash loves that kind of stuff, but folks, that lineup wasn't all that successful. Better in game five than in game four, though. Big three with Harrison Brown outscored Boston 67 and 61 in 22 minutes in the series. Extraordinarily efficient on offense, putrid on defense. KD, though, you know, he had an interesting take on it. Here's his clip. Hey, Kevin, uh, because of the unfortunate injuries and the COVID stuff, you didn't have a lot of time to play together. One lineup that I don't think ever played was with when you, Kevin, when you, uh, Kyrie, James, and Bruce and Joe played with you as really the sole big. I wanted to know uh, what you saw and what did you like about that? I think that made teams adjust to us. I mean, they might switch their lineup up. Um, Boston probably switched their lineup when they seen we had so many smalls out there. I mean, it's just the fact that we can try to play different ways and mix and match lineups. And we want to be a, a, a deep team. You know, you know you're going to cut rotations in the playoffs a little bit more, but if we can squeeze a couple more guys in there and give us some good minutes and use different lineups to throw other teams off, uh, uh, and then, you know, that should help us. But for the most part, guys are ready to, to adapt to any situation. And, you know, we all enjoy playing with each other, so we can talk stuff through. So, I don't know, maybe that was just something the Nets can keep in their bag for later on. I'm still skeptical about whether that'll ever work against the teams that are lined up to play. Like, Milwaukee has great length. And you can't just switch Brown onto Giannis Antetokounmpo like they did with Tatum. It's one dribble and a dunk. So now I guess it's time to get some more insight into how the Nets should prepare for the challenge that lays ahead. So let's hear from the talented young writer from NetsDaily.com, Matt Brooks. Here's my interview with Matt. Folks, joining me now is the most highly regarded forensic expert on the web, at least in my opinion, when it comes to breaking down Nets game video. Very talented young writer for NetsDaily.com. Matt Brooks is back with me. Matt, uh, thanks for giving me some time to talk Nets basketball. Thank you. Thank you. Forensic. I like that. Uh, I might have to add that to, to a couple of my my uh, my bylines and stuff like that. But I'm good. I'm happy that we're here. I feel like this is kind of finally the point that we're waiting for at this point in the season. Yeah. Well, I, I watched your last post on your YouTube channel. I think it's 
Matt Brooks NBA. That yep. What is, uh, you know, you did it after game four and I gotta say, I was, I was really hoping it would be one of those, Hey kitties, this is what you don't do on the defensive end of a basketball <laughs> court. You know, that kind of analysis. I mean, you had a, Yet so much for to choose from in this series. <laughs> watch Evan Fournier play the role of Celtics Matador. Or watch the Nets graciously hand over Blake Brick and Blake Griffin after you know a token screen as fodder for Jason Tatum. And of course, the always fun game. Who's Kyrie Irving guarding? <laughs> so you know, was that on the table for you, or you just if, to go in another direction? Yeah, if if we were, I mean, I, I did it after game four. And I think if we'd done, if I'd done a video on game five, now granted game five is, you know, they're trying to, they're closing out the series. They're up 3-1. The intensity, I mean, we could be honest, it just wasn't there. But you see it. Like in the games that when they don't bring it, it's everything. It's it's not like a couple of the little things. No, it's like all of the little things that, that, that the Nets aren't doing. They're not rebounding. Um, guys on the weak side of the floor, Kyrie has been pretty bad about this and Harden is, is actually been a little bit better in the playoffs, but, um, just the weak side of the floor, they're ignoring the, the man and, and just sort of not really guarding anybody. Um, and then just, yeah, the point of attack defense. I mean, Blake Griffin has been, um, troubling. I think that's probably a good place to start. It's, he just can't stay in front of anybody right now. And the rotations behind the ball are just so bad for the Nets in some of these games that when he gets, you know, lost, it, it just sort of cascades from there. So, yeah, I, I, I think with the point of that video was to show that they have it, it's in there. But the question right now is, can they channel that for more than, you know, what, two out of five games in a series? Like, we're just not quite seeing it consistently enough. I think that's the biggest red flag for the Nets right now. Yeah, I mean, look, your your clips are that the ones you show are always spot on. And but, you know, I didn't I just didn't think they were representative of the Nets defensive effort. You know, they had yes, they had some possessions where they trapped or loaded up properly in the right places for Tatum, but you know what really bothered me is all those times where Boston would set like a cursory screen, you know, obligatory. And the Nets would say, okay, go ahead. We'll just switch. It wasn't, there was no hit. There was no need to switch. Did, did you see a lot of that? Yeah. I, I think that's a trend now in the league and it's a really bad trend. And I, I think part of me, I, I think I'm going to spend, it, it's a tricky thing. Like I, I it, because it's such a trend right now, it's kind of hard to evaluate. So I feel like I'm, you know, sort of getting riled up about something that every single team in the league is doing, or at least a good portion of them. So that's, that's the big thing that I have trouble with right now is that the goal really, and it seems like in, in a lot of um, just a lot of the NBA right now is just to keep the ball up top and not let dribble drives happen where it, even if you're doing a little bit of a, a soft switch, you're going to be at least, you know, making sure that you're not getting left behind the play if the screen does connect. So it's a tricky thing, but I, I think that <laughs> maybe I'm being, maybe you're right. I am being a little too optimistic, um, but I wanted to show kind of, this is what the best version of the Nets defense can look like. And we'll see if they can channel it. Well, now that they're on to Milwaukee, I guess the follow-up is, you know, should they be doing the same thing scheme wise? I mean, can they keep switching everything? Giannis switches out to a guard. It's one dribble and a dunk. So how would you hope they play it? 
Yeah, that's tricky. Um, and I I will say for the Celtics, I do think that because of the pull-up shooting, the pull-up equity that they've got in Kemba Walker and Jason Tatum, um, and just Jason Tatum being, I mean, my goodness, that guy is such a special player and has grown a lot in the last year. Just the way that he's able to get to the rim now is just a lot different from a year ago. You look at Milwaukee, they have a very, very talented team. It's, it's, I think their depth is probably a little more reliable right now. Um, but I, I will say the one thing that they maybe lack in is just having those guys that can attack mismatches in isolation. They're not like a bad team at that. Cause I think Middleton can get his, you know, he can get his own shot. Uh, Giannis obviously speaks for himself with the way he's able to get to the rim. Drew's also got a little bit of, um, well, he's got a post game, which is cool, but it, it's, it's still not at the same level. I think that any of the, really any of them for with, with Tatum, I mean, that's just a superstar score right there. So I think I worry about it a little bit less in that way. Uh, there are other things that I'm probably more concerned about, namely the rebounding right now. I mean, their starting five is, I think, <laughs> I think their worst rebounder in the lineup. And I, that's a big, big cause for concern right now. Yeah, I'm going to get into that in a second, but just to go back, uh, Giannis, you know, he, he's not Tatum, so you don't have – you could go under. You could you could yes. play drop. You don't have – you know, you don't have to worry if he comes around a screen and pulls up from 18 feet. So do you think that – do you think Nash, is, is he so embedded with this switching scheme that he won't change, or do you think he'll adjust? Well, it depends who's playing, right? So if we see DJ, it's I'm not saying it's an automatic drop, but it's it's very close to it. Even if he's playing closer to the level of the screen, he's still going to be dropped a little bit just because inherently I don't think he can move around like that. If he doesn't play DJ, we kind of saw what it looks like. I, I I you know, in those two games where they played Milwaukee in the regular season, Blake Griffin would be in a bit of a drop. Now, granted, he's not really that effective in a drop because he has short arms. He's I, usually, I mean, <laughs> usually not the tallest player on the floor. So, you know, him being in a drop isn't as effective, but what would happen is they'd keep him in a drop and he would jump out and sort of lurch out towards Giannis when he would prep up that, uh, I guess, like that pull-up free throw line jumper. So I think that's probably what we're going to see again scheme-wise. I would be really curious if DJ plays, though. I think this is the one series you can feel pretty good about it. Um, I actually weirdly feel better about DJ playing in this series than even Philly. Okay. Well, back to the rebounding, you know, because Milwaukee is significantly bigger than Boston, I'd also imagine that Nash won't be able to use that uber small ball lineup he used the last couple of games. You know, KD is the sole big and Bruce Brown is the five on offense. I got to say, I'm not a fan of that, but, you know, that – my next question then is how should the Nets match up with Milwaukee? Really tricky. I've thought about this a lot. Um, do you want to try and make Milwaukee adjust to you? Well, you could do that by playing small, but the problem is that's going to give them a, some sort let's say it really worked. Let's say it, it, you know, Brooke Lopez was played out the floor. I don't know if that would happen. Um, they just have such a sound scheme with the way they're sending players um, towards him and, and it kind of like funneling the offense toward him. But let's say it worked. Well, then you'd probably end up with Giannis at the five or something like that, which I think is also a really dangerous lineup. And I don't know if that has its advantages in this, in this specific series. So what I would do is I would probably play a little bit bigger. 
Um, I, I would think about DeAndre Jordan. I would definitely think and say, hey, I think Blake Griffin's going to survive a little bit more in this series. Um, there's going to be a little bit less pressure on him to move around the floor the way that he did against that Celtics team that was pretty small. So I think that's what you'd have to go with right now. Stick with kind of the rotations that we saw in the regular season. Just you have Harden in the mix. Well, who gets Giannis? Who gets Middleton? Who gets Drew? Whew, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I think I think you're going to match up Giannis with the center, um, and <laughs> I don't feel good about that. Giannis is going to get his every single game in this series, even if he's not scoring. I think he's going to be able to rebound and, and clean up his own misses or other players' misses. So that'll be tricky. That's going to be a lot of extra points for them. Middleton, I'd probably go with KD, and then Drew. I mean, I, I maybe think about you know, either Bruce or if he's in the lineup or, or Harden, just because of the post-up abilities um, they matched up. I mean, cause Harden wasn't in the mix. They matched up Kyrie with drew and drew is just taking him down to the block. And it's just a huge size difference down there. So well, I think now that for, they have Forbes in that, you know, Kyrie can just hang out in the corner with him pretty much. That's, that's where he's best in the Trey he- young spot. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing is though, he's got to, he's got to be ready for those relocation threes. Like if they run dribble handoffs with Giannis and, and Bryn Forbes, or they're doing an inverted pick and roll where those things are, where, where Giannis is handling and Bryn Forbes is the one setting a screen. He's got to be on it. Like he's got to be locked in for this. So it's not like the Romeo Langford assignment that we saw at the end of the last series. So, I mean, even that's like a big role. It's, it's, it sounds like it's hiding him, but he does need to stay really ready for that because Forbes is, a massive X factor in that entire series. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> that's not good, but what do you do? With <laughs> I, you know, I would have, I would have played him more in this last series. I think yeah, that I mean, if Nash has been sheltering him forever. Um, I, I don't get it. Honestly, like I don't get it. And I, if there is one thing I really want to complain about that last series, the defense is one thing, whatever I've given up on the idea of this group playing consistent defense, rebounding, they'll rebound one every three games. It, it look, honestly, like that's kind of what it is. After a while, you are who you are. I don't understand not playing Nick Claxton. I don't get it. What's, what's the harm in letting him just roam, you know, sort of run free for an entire fourth quarter. It, it, it just doesn't really make sense to me. And it was very clear, even, you know, by the end of game five, you saw him check in, in the fourth quarter and you knew it. You were like, okay, he's going to probably get subbed out within like four or five minutes. And sure enough, it happened. So I don't get it. I think that's your big swing guy that can make a huge difference in some of these series. And you're just not playing him. I don't know. I don't get it. I don't know how you feel, but I don't understand. Yeah. I mean, I think in this series, he felt he could get away with Bruce Brown in that spot. And you know, actually Brown gives them more offense. I just, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, you know, Brown's being seven inches shorter is a better finisher around the paint. What, excuse me, was a better finisher around <laughs> the paint. Not shouldn't be, but he was. Yeah, no, it's, it's, and it's, I mean, I think what they, they like what Brown provides in terms of he's a guy that rolls really well. And the more I watch them, the more I just realize it's, they, they really, they're all in on offense. I mean, they really are. Um, you know, Br- Bruce Brown is going to make those plays out of the short roll. You see it when he checks in. They'll, they'll run a, a screen and roll with him and Harden and, and Brown's going to kick out to Kevin Durant, who's at the wing or Kyrie Irving, who's in the corner. And I think that's the stuff they really like. They like that crispness, crispness, but I, the other side of the ball, it's like, you know, the small ball thing is cool, but when you're not getting a single rebound and you're just not offering any resistance 
And, and granted, Bruce Brown is a really good point of attack defender. So you can get away with some of that, but for these next two series, I don't know if that matters as much. You need to be strong down low. and the, Yeah, and st- size is going to matter. So I'm with NetsDaily.com, yes. writer Matt Brooks. Just a couple more for you, Matt, if you don't mind. Uh, I purposely spent much of this discussion on Nets defense because that's where I believe the Nets' fate lies. But, you know, I don't want to just gloss over how prolific the offense has been since James Harden came to town. So I want to know what – you know, I haven't read all your stuff, but I'm sure you or someone at Nets Daily has written up about, you know, what Harden has meant and how historically great this team's offense has been with him at the helm. Yeah, I mean, he is a uh, – I don't even know where to start with him, honestly. He he sets the table, you know, so he's he's got that – it's weird. He's got that classic point guard trait where you want him to be setting up the offense, getting guys touches. You can see it during the game. He – He'll take the ball up and maybe he has an open look, but he'll, he'll hand it off to Kyrie and Kyrie will take a pull up 28 foot shot. And it's just, he just understands how to get everybody involved, how to keep the offense flowing, how to keep things evenly distributed. He's also their best mismatch hunter. And that part, I think if you're looking at anything that's going to swing this buck series and, and you watch those two regular season games at the end, that's where they left food on the table. You know, they, they didn't attack Bryn Forms. They didn't really attack, you know, like a Pat uh, Connaughton or somebody like that. And you have Harden in the mix. They're going to take advantage of that. They're going to try to play those guys off the floor. They're going to attack Brooke Lopez. Um, and I think if if you're looking at anything he brings to this Nets team, the step backs are great. The floater game is great. But it's the mismatch hunting, I think, that is the biggest thing that he brings to the table, aside from all the things that he can do as a distributor. And as a leader, I mean, you see yes. all the time just getting in the ears of guys. And, you know, I think, you know, I didn't think it would be, you know, I didn't, I didn't think Harden would have that much of an impact in that area, but boy, was I wrong. No, they, and, and it's like, they, I, I don't love to use the word like soft or anything, but I, I think they play less soft. Like it, it they just, <laughs> there's something about having him on the floor. They just have a little more resolve and that's the best way to describe it. All right, Matt, before I let you go, I got to get your prediction in this series. I personally, I don't see how anyone could view it as anything other than a toss-up. But what's your crystal ball showing? Will this be the end of the line for the Nets, or will our summer be extended? I've Nets in seven. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with that. Um, I think this group will learn a lot in this series. I think there will be a game where they get punched in the mouth. I think they're going to have a game where they score 130-140. I've gone a lot of different ways with it. I've thought about maybe the Bucks winning six. You know, this is just the Nets just didn't get the time together. Thought about the Nets maybe winning five, but we just underestimated the firepower of this group. But I'm going to settle in on seven. I I just I I can't overlook this Bucks team. I don't think anybody should. Yeah, it's going to be a tough one. Matt Brooks of NetsDaily.com. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today, folks. Make sure you check out the NetsDaily.com site throughout the playoff run. They have this team covered inside and out with a loaded lineup of talented young writers and the old man himself, Mr. Net Income. (laughs) Also, check out Matt's YouTube channel, Matt Brooks NBA. Watch his breakdowns of the most vital sequences of all these games. So thank you, Matt. Hope to see you at Barclays Center this weekend, maybe round two, game one. Uh, I think Chris is going to be there. I got family in town this weekend, but I'll be there. I'll be there for the back end of that series. Well, I hope, I'll thank you personally whenever you're there. <laughs> for now, 
Thanks. Have a good one. Sounds good. Thank you. So thanks again to Matt Brooks of NetsDaily.com. By now, most of you know my affinity for all those guys. You know, like I always say, anything ever tangentially related to the Brooklyn Nets happens anywhere in the world. NetsDaily.com has it covered. So yeah, again, check out Matt's work on the site and on his YouTube channel. I'm sure you'll learn something new about the Nets every time you do. And speaking of something new, you know, just as I wrapped up my interview with Matt, bam, you know, the news breaks that Danny Ainge is out as GM of the Celtics, retires. And Brad Stevens goes from coaching to the executive office. Boy, has things have changed since that 2013 trade, huh? Anyway, you know, Matt and I were discussing Nick Claxton, so I just wanted to dive into the numbers a little bit, you know, in advance of the Milwaukee series. I mean, we talked about he clearly adds value. I mean, the length, the athleticism, the switchability, etc. Talked about it ad nauseum here. And I think he started to get a little more comfortable about what playoff basketball is all about in these last two games. Or, you know, maybe it was really just Nash sheltering him in situations he was more likely to succeed. Because, you know, his minutes shrunk in favor of those small ball lineups. Eight minutes in game four, 12 minutes in game five. I think Claxton did make an impact, though, in those limited minutes, especially Sunday night in Boston. And that's where kind of floating around defensively like they often do. Claxton comes in in the first quarter. The Nets' radio Twitter account had a great video post showing all of Claxton's big defensive plays that kind of turned the tide. By the time he exited, Brooklyn was up five and on their way to a somewhat comfortable win, You know, even though he barely played in the second half. You know, the biggest issue to me was Claxton on the offensive side. I'm sorry, you can't be shooting 40% in the paint including 46% in the restricted area, you can't be that weak inside in these games and expect to play. You know, we talked about this with Matt. Brown has the same kind of role, you know, and he was more effective taking those same shots. It wasn't great in the Celtics series at 50%, but remember, Brown is seven inches shorter. Anyway, here's what Claxton had to say when I asked him about his scoring difficulties before Game 5. Hey, Nick, uh, when you go back at the, at, looked at the tape of the first three games of the series, do you have a, a common thread in the missed opportunities around the basket, the little hooks that you made at a very high efficiency during the season? Yeah, I need to be more aggressive. I need to, so I need to go dunk on somebody. I need to just, you know, I need to be more aggressive, especially when I have guards on me. And also me being more aware, drawing the crowd in being able to kick out to, to our shooters, knowing if I have two or three guys on me, then somebody's wide open. You know, it's, a, it's just a little different, you know, with, with guys getting more attention. So just being more aware, knowing when I, when I need to get off the ball. Just go dunk on someone, Nick. He had a few uh, in the closeout game. So it'll be interesting to see if Nash expands Claxton's minutes in the Buck series, especially with Green out. Think he gets reevaluated between between games one and two. Again, I think the Nets will have no choice but to figure out a way to play bigger. But you know who knows, right? No matter what, this series will come down to what I said in the open. Can this team get enough stops? Enough stops. 
At this point, with the current injury situation, I think they do. So I'm going to go agree with Matt Brooks. Say the Nets in seven. Let me know what you think, folks. Hit me up on Twitter or in the comments section wherever you're downloading this episode. Odyssey, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever. Whether you do or not, hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thanks again to Matt Brooks of Nets Daily. Did a great job again in the special guest slot. I'll be back after Game 2 next week. So until next time, I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFAN.com saying thank you for listening to the City Game Podcast. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.